All right, this morning, we're in the Gospel of Matthew. As we continue our studies there, our text this morning is gonna be Matthew chapter three, verses 13 through 17. So open your Bibles or navigate on your tablet or uh, your phone over there. Matthew chapter three, verses 13 through 17. Our topic, Jesus travels from Nazareth 60 miles south to the Jordan River where John at first tries to prevent him from being baptized. The title of our message, The Southern Baptist Contention. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, as we approach your word, there's maybe no passage in all the Bible, Lord, or we certainly haven't come to one in a while that is so much about Jesus Christ. Of course, you said, Lord, that the, you came in the volume of the book, and we, we believe, Lord, that every page has you on it in some way, and that the whole book speaks of you. But today, Lord, we get to really concentrate on you personally, on, on you stepping forward into your ministry for us. And I pray, Lord, that it would be a rich time, a full time of seeing who you are and what you've done. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Who recognizes the catchphrase, I love it when a plan comes together? Raise your hand if you recognize that. A lot of A-team fans, first service as well. It's Colonel John Hannibal Smith's uh, phrase from the television series, The A-Team. Now, I don't mean to trivialize the monumental events of Jesus' baptism, but you could say of it that a plan was coming together. It was a plan at least 6,000 years of human history in the making, not counting what had been determined in eternity past before the creation of the world. God's plan to save mankind from their sin was coming together as Jesus Christ stepped into the Jordan River. Submitting as he did to the baptism of John was his way of telling his father in heaven that he was ready to walk the road to Calvary. God the Father responded in a way that let Jesus know he would be spiritually supplied to accomplish what the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit had planned. I'm gonna organize my thoughts about the baptism of Jesus around two points. Number one, look closely and you'll see Jesus submitting to our Father and number two, listen carefully and you'll hear our Father supplying Jesus. First of all, let's look in verses 13 through 15 at Jesus submitting to our Father. Now I think it's important we remember that what is commonly called Christianity is not a Jesus-come-lately religion that started in the first century. In the Garden of Eden, at the very beginning of human history, God promised Adam and Eve he would come himself as a man in order to redeem what they had forfeited through sin. At his baptism, this plan of God was game on for Jesus. Verse 13, then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. Then means it was right after John had said the Messiah was coming earlier in our chapter. Jesus is being identified as that person, as the King of Israel, as the Messiah of Israel. Galilee was about 60 miles from where John was baptizing. It wasn't a day trip. It required real effort on the part of Jesus to get there. Jesus went to John just like every other Jew. No one being baptized would have known him or recognized him. I don't know why I thought about this, but I thought, can you imagine the Son of God, 
God come in human flesh, standing in line, waiting to be baptized. Maybe I think about it because I don't like lines. Do you like lines? Raise your hand if you like lines. I have a whole theory about line behavior and what is proper line behavior. Some of you have heard some of my line facts before. I mean, there's a certain distance when you're in line at the ATM, you know, that kind of, you don't wanna be walking up to people and handing them tracks while they're at the ATM. Or maybe you do if you're big enough. But anyway, it's just one of those things. So, so, but can you imagine the son of God standing in line, an obscure individual uh, waiting to be baptized? No one knew him. He was from Galilee 60 miles away. A lot of those people had never been, uh, certainly to Nazareth, even if there were people from Galilee. It wasn't like there was a, uh, a name tag or anything. Oh, who are, oh, you're the son of God. Oh, wonderful, yeah. You want to cut in front of me in line? <laughs> you know, that's fine. Uh, so he's just there waiting, but John now recognized him. Verse 14, and John tried to prevent him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? John had some history with Jesus. John was Jesus' cousin, so we can assume that he would know him by sight. But he knew something more about Jesus too. He knew that Jesus was by far holier than he was. One way he knew of Jesus' holiness was by the agency of the Holy Spirit. When John was still in his mother's womb, Mary came to visit Elizabeth and were told that John leaped inside his mother Elizabeth's womb. And so if the Holy Spirit was at work even then in John telling him who Jesus was, we have an understanding that he would be at work here as well. And by the way, a lot of times you're, you're our Baptist brothers, they like to say that John was the first Baptist uh, because he was absolutely, you know, John the Baptist and that's the proper denomination. I submit to you because of what John did in the womb that he was a prenatal Pentecostal. He may have been the first minister of the prenatal Pentecostal Baptist Magnificent Temple of John if, or something like that, but anyway. So next time your Baptist friends give you a hard time, say, well, actually, John was a prenatal Pentecostal. Um, he was. Besides what the Holy Spirit told him, John undoubtedly had heard from his mom and dad the account of Mary being with child by the Holy Spirit. He was probably aware of the events of Matthew chapters one and two with, regarding the visit of the Magi to the young Jesus and the subsequent flight into Egypt to avoid being murdered by Herod. It's even possible Jesus and John had hung out at family functions. We know, for example, that Jesus was taken to the temple and when he was 12, he got left behind by Joseph and Mary, not from neglect, but because they assumed he was with other family members. And we can't say for sure which family members, but there's a sense of Jewish family and John and Jesus were related and they would have had some contact with each other over the years. It would seem that John understood that Jesus was in fact the Messiah and the King and it therefore troubled him as to exactly why Jesus would come forward to submit to a baptism of repentance it seemed wrong. But Jesus, verse 15, answered and said to him, permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he allowed him. 
Jesus gave John one compelling reason for getting baptized. It was to fulfill all righteousness. Righteousness here refers to keeping God's law and obeying what God might require of Jews at any particular time, especially as revealed by a prophet. Baptism was not a requirement under the law, but God had sent John to baptize in the spirit and the power of Elijah in preparation for the coming of the Messiah, and this was definitely a requirement at that time for believing Jews. And so to fulfill all righteousness could mean just keeping the law, but it also meant doing what God was telling you to do at the time through the prophets. It wasn't required per se for Jesus, but he said it was fitting for him, meaning it was something he ought to do. It was the right thing for Jesus to do. Why? Well, by being baptized along with the other Jews, Jesus was identifying himself with them. He was taking his place among them as if he was one of them. He who had no sin to repent of took his place among those who had sin to repent of. He who was sinless identified himself with sinners. By submitting to John's baptism, Jesus was submitting to the whole plan of God to save mankind. That plan, which we know as the gospel, was for God to become a man and as this unique God-man live a sinless life, then die on the cross for the sins of all mankind as their representative and as their substitute. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, you read that God, and I quote, made him to, uh, speaking of Jesus, made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so when, when we look at the cross, we're to see Jesus Christ representing us as our substitute, becoming sin for us or taking upon himself our sin and because he lived a sinless life, offering us his righteousness and there's this exchange at the cross. I get Jesus' righteousness when I believe. He takes my sin and dies for it, satisfying God's holiness. What the Father would do spiritually on the cross is illustrated by Jesus submitting to John's baptism. There he says, I will take your place. Just as you are being baptized for the, remission of, or for the repentance of sin, I'm gonna stand with you and for you. And because I'm the sinless, perfect son of God, it will have value later on. Now, there are a few other things that were accomplished by Jesus' baptism by John. First of all, as we're gonna see in the next two verses, his baptism afforded our Father the opportunity to supply Jesus abundantly for his three-and-a-half-year ministry leading up to the cross. Second, his baptism marked the official beginning of his ministry. He'd been in obscurity for some 30 years and then he steps forward and when he comes up out of the banks of the Jordan River, his ministry has begun. Also, thirdly, by submitting himself to John, Jesus gave approval to John's ministry. John's ministry was out there in terms of what Jews were used to and the fact that hundreds of thousands perhaps of Jews were being baptized with him, still the religious leaders were critical of John. Uh, they didn't get baptized by him, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they were critical of his ministry. Jesus being their Messiah, the Son of God, when he was baptized by John, he said, hey, this is a credible ministry. 
I submit to this because this is, the, this is what God is doing. And then fourth, by being baptized, Jesus was predicting the cross and the empty tomb because again, as we'll see in verses 16 and 17, baptism is a figure to us of death followed by resurrection. Thank you, Jesus, for submitting to John's baptism and for thereby submitting to the cross upon which you saved us, amen? What a beautiful picture this is. Now, the submission of Jesus Christ ought to humble us. When you think of him leaving heaven, taking on a human body, living in an undesirable place, relegated to obscurity for 30 years, it's humbling. Here's a way of putting it into perspective. Jesus, we know from the book of Colossians and elsewhere, created the universe as we know it. He created the macrocosm, he created the microcosm, he created what you see in cellular life, he created the stellar heavens. I mean, it's pretty fantastic, right? And then he comes to earth as a man, and from at least the time he's 12 until he's 30, we, we believe he was a carpenter, working with wood and metal and stone. And so his father says, Jesus, you who created the heavens and the earth in all their glory and magnificence, I want you to learn how to work with wood. I want you to take some lumber and build a chair, a really nice chair, and a trough and all these other things. I mean, it's humbling, is it not? It's, it's amazing. You don't like, you and I don't like this when we get menial tasks and we're thinking, well, hey, I'm, you want me to do what? Clean a toilet? I'm a college graduate. I qualify to clean a sink. Not a toilet, but anyway, just making fun. Um, I, it wasn't funny before, it wasn't funny now, but I try. <laughs> Sometimes you just go for it. But you, do you understand what I mean? We don't like it when we are asked to do menial things. For at least 18 years, Jesus, the creator of heaven and earth, was asked to live a menial life, creating the, or not even creating anything, just working with things that he had already created. Can you imagine what it would be? Well, you can't imagine what it would be like to be the son of God and think, I made this tree, and now I'm making it into a hammer uh, with a stone that I created and stuff. It's, it's mind-boggling, and so it, it's humbling. Ultimately, Jesus submitted to the cross, and so his submission should humble us. But too often, submission is something that stumbles us. We don't like to submit, and we have all kinds of reasons why we can't or shouldn't submit in different circumstances. I don't know where you might be stumbled by God asking you to submit, whether it's at home, whether it's at work, maybe even in the church. But these are the venues in which God still asks us to submit. It seems as though a lot of folks lately are being stumbled at home, not just in our church, but in all the churches I'm familiar with all over our nation, all over the world, as marriages are falling apart, Christian marriages. Now, there are grounds for divorce, biblical grounds that are given in the scripture. I don't wanna go into all of that right now. Generally speaking, without getting specific, if you're abandoned by a non-believer or if there's sexual immorality, especially ongoing sexual immorality, then Jesus says you, you have the decision to make as to whether or not you want to get a divorce and remarry. But I would say that the vast majority of divorces that I'm aware of that are happening among Christians are happening for selfish reasons alone. There are no biblical grounds. There aren't even any really good grounds 
It's just people acting selfish, wanting to do their own thing, getting fed up. And in in essence, they're not saying this. They have their reasons and their excuses and and their uh, uh, explanations. But what they really are saying in their actions is, God, I will not submit to you. I choose not to submit to your plan for marriage. Or it could, as I said, be at work or in the church. Uh, But we should be able to look at Jesus Christ in his earthly submission, and it should just knock us down to the ground in, in terms of the little tiny submission that God is asking us to do compared to what Jesus did for me, not just in general, not just to be the king of submission, but so that I could be saved and supplied by his spirit to do these things. Since Jesus submitted supremely, so can we. And that brings us into verses 16 and 17 where if we listen carefully, we hear our Father supplying Jesus. John had already baptized multiplied thousands of people, but when he baptized Jesus, something stunning occurred. Verse 16 When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. The heavens were opened doesn't just mean that the clouds parted and it was a nice sunny day. There's an indication of seeing through our stellar heavens and into heaven itself. It's like when in the book of Acts, Stephen sees into heaven while he's being martyred. We can't say how much of heaven John and Jesus saw. Matthew emphasizes that Jesus saw the spirit of God descending. We know from John's gospel that John the Baptist also saw the Holy Spirit descending. In fact, it was a sign he was told to look for that would positively identify the one who was the Messiah. And so though John may have suspected it was Jesus, when he saw the spirit descend on him, he knew for a fact it was. Now, I get the impression, don't you, that neither Jesus nor John had any idea that this was how God was going to introduce Jesus as the Messiah. It's clear they hadn't met to discuss exactly how they were going to go about introducing him or baptizing him. One day, the Holy Spirit stirred Jesus to go to the Jordan to be baptized, and John almost ruined the moment and had to be convinced that it was necessary. Let's face it. If we were handling the, the event of the baptism of Jesus Christ, it, do you ever watch The Celebrity Apprentice? You shouldn't, but I do sometimes. And at the end, they always have some big event that they put on for charity. And it has to be just right. If, we, if Donald Trump said, I want you to organize the baptism of Jesus, or you're fired, then uh, you know, we, would, we would send a, you know, a, a thing to pick Jesus up. I, you know those things that they carry, you know, where you, t- guys carry it on your shoulders and you walk along? You see them in all the Egyptian movies, you know? They're, they're called beers, B-I-E-R-S. But I never call them what they're called. You probably think, why doesn't he look up what they're called? Why does he always say that thing that they carry people on like an idiot? Because I don't want to use the word beers because then you think, what's he talking about? What, are they, ha- they throwing some back? Or, well, what's a beer have to do with this? And then you're distracted you're thinking about the barbecue or something, you know, and should I drink? And, and, and so I don't say, but that's what they're called. So we would send a beer for him. And, and Jesus would be carried along and there'd be, you know, 
pomp and circumstance and music and country stars would be playing ahead of him and, you know, uh, whoever. Uh, and, and we'd put him up in the nicest possible hotel, have a big pavilion out there by the Jordan River, one of those temporary tents that you put up, get some chafing dishes out and have all kinds of food and, and you know, all the dignitaries from all over the world. This would be the ticket that you'd want to have. Paparazzi up on the hill taking pictures, you know, that kind of thing. You'd, for, you could be in the gold club, you know, for a thousand drachma, you could, you know, meet Jesus before he's being baptized. His robe, you could buy his robe afterwards on eBay, you know, and they would go to church. I mean, you're like, this is how we would do it. This is how we do things. Instead, God says, go get baptized in the Jordan. John's not gonna like it, but make sure he does it. And, and then we're starting your ministry. We need to remain sensitive to the leading and the prompting and the stirrings of God the Holy Spirit because the way we do things oftentimes has nothing to do with bringing glory to God. It only brings glory to us because we can step back and see, man, everything went beautifully. Everything went just as it was planned. This is maybe arguably, well, it's certainly one of the most monumental events in the history of our planet. And it was just two guys who didn't know really what was going on, essentially. And uh, in, in the sense of John not knowing how to baptize or should he baptize Jesus. And no one else, as far as I can tell, saw the heavens open or the Holy Spirit descend. Now, in another gospel, John identifies Jesus, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, but I don't think anybody even really understood that. And so it's very different the way God does things in the scriptures. Now, the dove, the dove is so common a symbol of the Holy Spirit to us, isn't it? Isn't it the most common symbol? It's on the back of cars, it's on our sign, it's, it's, a great, it's associated a lot with Calvary Chapel, but it's a general Christian symbol of our day and age. It's so common that we fail to understand this is the very first time in the scriptures that he appears in the form of a dove and at the baptism of Jesus is the only time the Holy Spirit appears as a dove. You think, well, he, no, he must appear as a dove all over the scriptures. No, no, only here at the baptism of Jesus Christ. Commentators suggest many interesting and even insightful reasons why he would appear as a dove. Probably the most important has to do with what Jews would have thought once they heard that the dove had descended upon Jesus. So when they read this, if you're a Jew and you're reading the Gospel of Matthew or hearing it read, and, and you hear that a dove descended from heaven and alighted on him, you might recall the very first time in your scriptures that a dove is mentioned. It's when Noah was still on the ark riding out the floodwaters of God's judgment against sin. He sent out a dove, and when that dove descended back upon the ark with an olive branch in its mouth, it meant that the waters of God's judgment had receded and that God was again seeking peace with the human race. The apostle Peter in his second letter compares the waters of Noah's flood to the waters of baptism. He says of Noah, he was saved by water, literally through the water, uh, referencing water, the waters of the flood as a judgment from God. Now a Jew would have heard about the dove and immediately thought of Noah and the flood or, or you could assume that they would because this was an unusual occurrence. 
That was the last time in their scriptures that a dove had alighted upon someone coming out of floodwaters. They would have looked upon Jesus, upon whom the dove descended, and wondered how could he be an ark that would save them from the waters of God's judgment? How could he bring them an olive branch from God? And the answers to those questions would be given as they watched Jesus over the next three and a half years, especially as they watched him on the cross, because there on Calvary, the floodwaters of God's judgment of, against sin would roll over him for their sake, and there God the Father makes peace with the human race. Jesus even talked about the cross as if it were a flood-like baptism. Speaking about his dying on the cross, Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke, I have a baptism to be baptized with and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. He wasn't talking about water baptism or his previous baptism in the Jordan. He said, I'm looking forward to a baptism and he was talking about the cross where the flood of God's judgment against sin would wash over him. But after it was done, he would come up out of the empty tomb and God would offer peace to mankind. Now the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus here and he stayed. Now we know Jesus was born by the agency of the Holy Spirit, formed by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb. He was filled with the Holy Spirit throughout his life up to that point. The Holy Spirit coming upon him and remaining is a new and different relationship with the Holy Spirit. We would call it an anointing or an empowering for his ministry. For example, in Isaiah 11:2, we read of the Messiah, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Jesus will later quote this passage and say, it's about me. Jesus would be abundantly supplied by God to carry out his mission. He who was formed by the Spirit and who was already filled with the Spirit would have the Spirit come upon him and remain upon him for the length of his ministry. Now as we get further into Jesus' ministry, we're gonna see how he had very little in terms of earthly resources. He had no house of his own. His followers had to glean in the fields in order to eat some days. What little money they were given as offerings from the poor people was being embezzled by Judas. And so it was a very poor ministry, very few what we would call resources. You never think about those things because of the superabundant supply that Jesus was given by the Holy Spirit. I mean, seriously, when we read the Gospels and we see Jesus encounter a demon-possessed individual or a person who needs some kind of a healing or people who don't have enough food or whatever the situation might be, a woman with an issue of blood that nobody can solve, a paralyzed man, a guy with a withered hand, whatever it is, we, we always think he's gonna do something. He, he's gonna do, why? On what basis do we think that? because he has no resources whatsoever. There's no orphanage to send people to, there's no homeless ministry, there's, there's nothing but Jesus and God the Holy Spirit and his Father telling him what to do. And yet John in his gospel at the end says, Jesus did so many things that if they were all written down, the world could not contain the books that describe them. And all I'm suggesting is, I'm not saying everything that we do or the church does or Christians do is wrong, but we need to change our thinking because we always think in terms of, here's the need, where do I get a resource to meet that? I wish I could help you, but I don't have the money. 
I wish I could help you, but we don't have the food. I wish I could help you, but we don't have an orphanage. I wish I could help you, but we just don't have what it takes. In other words, I'm in the position that Jesus was in, but I guess I don't have the Holy Spirit or I don't believe that God wants to do anything. And the truth is, we need to just step forward in faith sometimes and do what we can and watch God react to that. We are too dependent on resources oftentimes. And, and sometimes God provides pr- abundant resources, um, but he does, and he does it in ways that really don't honor him, that don't glorify him because we drum it up. We, we're the ones that create the resource. Now, if Jesus, who was born of the Spirit and who was filled with the Spirit up to this point, needed the Holy Spirit to come upon him in order to anoint and empower him to serve God, doesn't it stand to reason that we do too? And if Jesus is our example, shouldn't we who are born again by the Holy Spirit and are commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit be subsequently baptized by him, having him come upon us? Well, the answer to those questions is yes. Theologians are great at minimizing things to fit their systematic conclusions. Now, don't get me wrong. Obviously, you know I'm not a theologian. I'm not trained in theology. But I love to read systematic theologies. I probably have a dozen of them uh, where men try to put the Bible into a single perspective that kind of works within one system. It is a fascinating study, lots of smart guys. Most of those commentaries that you read immediately argue the moment you get saved, you've got all of the Holy Spirit that you're ever going to get. You're born again, the Holy Spirit indwells you, there's no more Holy Spirit for you. And then they get to the passage where it says you need to be filled with the Spirit and they say that's kind of up to you. The Holy Spirit comes in you, you've got all of him. If you wanna stay filled with him, that's up to you. You just need to read the word and have devotions and live a holy life. And, and so, so God gives you everything, as much as he's gonna give you and then you have to work hard to maintain it. If Jesus needed the Holy Spirit to come upon him and if he told his followers after his ascension into heaven to wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon them, then we need the Holy Spirit to come upon us from time to time. We should spend less time explaining away our need and asking for his empowering. I I don't like theology that limits us to things that really aren't biblical. It works, yeah, I can under, now I understand the Holy Spirit and I shouldn't be asking for him, even though God said to go on asking for him, to ask and seek and knock even though the scripture says that God delights to give his Holy Spirit continuously to believers. Verse 17, suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all present at the baptism of Jesus. Our God is one God in three persons in a relationship we cannot fathom. Now God's voice brings together two things he said in the past about the Messiah. In Psalm 2, verse 7, he said, the Lord has said to me, you are my son. In Isaiah 42, 1, uh, it says, behold, my servant whom I behold, my elect one. Now, the passage from Psalms describes the majesty and the glory and the sovereignty of Messiah as king. This was the way Jews thought about the coming of their Messiah. The passage from Isaiah goes on to describe the Messiah as the suffering servant. It was confusing to the Jews. How could, Jesus, how could their Messiah be this glorious king and a suffering servant at the same time? And so they assumed that God was talking about the nation of Israel as his suffering servant, not their Messiah. 
But Jesus, we know, is both of these at the same time. He came first to suffer for our sins in order to reign forever. After his death and resurrection and ascension into heaven, the apostles made clear in their preaching that these two things come together in the person of Jesus Christ. Our father's statement that he was well pleased with Jesus tells us that Jesus lived a sinless life. It's like a background check. Some of you have been through background check for a job or something like that where they check your criminal records to make sure that you're who you say you are and that you don't have any skeletons in your closet. And they come back with an approval or record judged or no problem or whatever. This is God's giving us a background check on Jesus, letting us know that he had reviewed every moment, every thought, and found that Jesus was sinless and perfect. It lets us know he can properly represent us as our substitute. He qualifies for his mission to die in our place. His death can be applied to us. As one commentator put it, the value of his dying depends upon the virtue of his living. He must be the sinless son of God in order for his substitutionary death, his representation on the cross to mean something for me. God's eternal plan was coming together on the banks of the Jordan. It was definitely not how anyone expected the Messiah to be introduced, but it was the only way he could be introduced to sinners. He had first to identify with us, to take his place among us, if he was ever going to save us. One more thing about Jews and doves. The dove was a sacrificial animal approved for use by the poorest of worshipers. If you had almost no money whatsoever. You couldn't afford a lamb or some other animal for sacrifice. You could bring a dove as your sacrifice. In Jesus Christ, we see deity submitting to be the sacrifice for sin for the poorest, the most impoverished, the most beggarly of sinners on the earth. In other words, you and I. Let's pray together.